0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, faithful Triple R listeners you are listening to 3 Triple R's Radio Therapy and it's Sunday morning of course and it's raining outside, we've got news about that and about the barbecue today but uh, first off we have a show full of surprises and some of it's a little R rated to be honest so uh, hmm, I think as I've said on the uh, Facebook site, maybe listen to some of this alone. First up we've got pornography what do we watch, how is it impacting on our sexuality and how is it affecting our young people's sexuality in particular we're going to move on a little bit also to the Christmas period which is close in on us fast, and Miss Medic is going to tell us a few tips about how to have a mindful Christmas. Mindful Christmas. Hmm. And transplants. You've heard of liver, lung, hearts, uh, all sorts of things. But we've got a new one for you. Fecal transplants. Quick, finish at breakfast. You might want to hear this one without food in front of you. Also, lots, lots more. Joining us on the panel this morning, we have a, a superlative... Yes, superlative cast. That's what I'm going to go with. Miss Medic, first up. If you combined Zen mastery with cutting-edge general practice knowledge and experience, you'd come up with Miss Medic. She does it all. She's an academic, a doctor, a commentator, and an all-round super person. Russell Pratt is our other, uh, he's also on the panel. Russell is a counselling and forensic psychologist. He has a day job working for a government agency. Sounds like a spy, but he's not. He basically helps young people, and he has an interest in the psychology of young people's sexuality and trauma. And finally, we have Lizzie O'Shea. Lizzie is a social justice lawyer and senior associate at law firm Morris Blackburn. Basically, that means she does a whole lot of good public works sort of stuff. Things like stopping nuclear waste being dumped on Aboriginal land, helping communities who don't want pokies fight the good fight. Yeah, I think you get the picture. And finally, there's me, Dr. Doolittle. I'm a shrink and general big mouth. In fact, Lizzie Lizzie said to me after a recent radio show, she said, you know, you have an opinion on everything, but I'm not convinced they're well thought out. <laughs> and you know what? She hit the nail on the head. Hi, Lizzie. How are Hi, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming in this morning.
1: Thanks for having me, despite my insulting comments towards you after our previous I radio didn't think it was r- insulting, I thought it was just factual.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and also, a special thanks because you wrote about 15 minutes in the rain to get here this I morning. I did, I'm drenched. You turned up looking a little drowned. <laughs> Miss Medic.
2: Good morning. Nice to have you back and nice to not be hosting, can I just say. You make it look a hell of a lot easier than it actually is. Oh,
0: th- in fact, formal thanks for um, filling in whilst I was sunbaking oh. on a Greek island yeah, um, some yeah, time ago. it must
2: have been really tough for you. It did was. you have a great time?
0: I did, I did, and I listened into to the show and I thought you did a wonderful job. You're the, you're, you're, uh, you can replace me any time you want.
3: <laughs> and Russell... Good morning, Doolittle.
0: Thanks for coming in, man. Just line that microphone up so it points right at you. Okay, how's that? You didn't ride your bike in, I hope.
3: No, no, too far for me. Too wet.
0: (laughs) Too far? Ah, it's never too far, never too wet. Hey, uh, we might jump straight into the um, chatting. Has anyone got... I didn't actually ask you all well outside. Did anyone bring in any uh, news that they want to do to jump ahead of me? Miss Medic, you've got a bit of paper in hand.
2: Oh, no, look, I'm just ready to hit the hit the ball rolling with what you've already introduced. I think there's already so much to talk about. But, there um, is. So, let, yeah, I reckon let's hit the... Let's go straight into what Russell's going to talk about with the pornography. It's fascinating stuff.
0: Do you want to do that first or do you want to do, I was going to do faecal transplants first. Oh,
1: okay. We can <laughs> Somebody have a, take
2: charge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very horizontal. This is what's
0: happened. Now we've got two hosts.
2: Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm just going to, right, I'm on the panel <laughs> Let's I'm not hosting.
0: <laughs> um, I thought we should get this out the way quickly, so to speak, but I, I think this is an interesting. So there's a, I mean in fact, Miss Medic and I were chatting about it beforehand. It's one of these things that we've been hearing about faecal transplants, so poo transplants for a long time.
1: Some people have been hearing about it
0: from so well, most people are not clear about what it is. True, so. <laughs> true, true, true. But it, I first, I reckon it first hit the radar probably around you know five ten years ago. Started hearing people talking about it, and you hear in medicine, in health in general, so many stories just pop up that you know they're fly by night stories. And you look at it and you raise your eyebrows and you think, oh, sounds interesting, and you never hear of it again. Especially from professors and stuff who are always trying to advertise their latest research, and so they're constantly saying we're on the verge of a, a great advance. You know, you hear that ten times a week and about twice a year you hear we've actually had a great advance. Mm. And this is one of those ones that I reckon popped up five to ten years ago, and then each year you hear a little bit more and oh now it's being used here and now it's being used there and now a prominent universities researching it and now there's trial treatments. And so fecal transplants have gone through um you know this whole sort of path. So I think and I think it's um worth having a bit of a look at. But
1: in a nutshell, um what they're about is I, I think also we should warn people, put down ear spoons, stop yeah. eating your age. <laughs> 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 Unless you
2: are a medic, because I think, isn't there just, I have a, an ability to just shut off that part of my brain. I yeah. can. It's just like when you're a, a medical student and you'd be assisting in surgery and you had that smell of that cauterised <laughs> flesh in your nostrils and you could still just sit down and eat lunch. Don't you think that we just get trained to be able to cope?
0: Absolutely. And, and look,
2: I'm a, I'm a mother of two small children, so talking about poo is pretty standard fare. You know moment.
0: where it really comes up to? just to digress again for a second, is at dinner parties. When you're at, you know, I go to a lot of, you know, you go to dinner parties where they say, you know, half the people are doctors, because if, you know, your friends are all medicos and stuff often, and um, the other half aren't. And people all start just, without even batting an eyelid, oh, God, I did this um, rectal examination the other day. You won't, and they'll start talking about things like that, and you'll see the other half, non medical. Look at you're just disgusting, but you just get so used do to touching lot, body parts and that sort of to stuff. Dinner six, <laughs> not anymore. No, not anymore. <laughs> do, you think, do you think there's a link?
2: Maybe. Yeah. I think that as a psychiatrist, you should stop doing rectal examinations. <laughs> 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 I
0: was just trying to pick out the most disgusting topic I, topic no, I could. No, just kidding. But just on the topic of, you know, um, this is what gets me about um, the, what they, you know, basically call the microbiota or the um, the bacterial flora in your gut. It's actually unbelievably massive. There's a hundred trillion microorganisms in your gut at any one time on uh, roughly and that's about 10 times greater than the total number of human cells in the whole body and these bacteria perform all sorts of um, activities and to the degree where they've been called the forgotten organ they do all sorts of things for our body keeping us alive stuff like obviously digestion they digest our food before it's absorbed energy extraction which is really important because the idea is some people's gut extract some people's flora extract far more energy from food than others mm-hmm. which can lead to obesity. It's one of the reasons some people seem naturally thin and, and despite eating a lot. Um immune roles, there's a whole lot of um things that the gut flora do in terms of protecting us from um various infections, a whole lot of allergy roles and this they've been in particular tied into a lot of you know this so-called epidemic of allergies that we have in our youth these days and various other roles some of which um seem a little bit weird and and not sure yet. Like for example in mood, it's even been hypothesized that gut flora can influence rates of depression and stuff like that and there's obviously still a lot to learn the bottom line at this stage is the faecal transplants only uh, only been proven in one condition so far and that's at this particular particularly nasty form of uh, diarrhoea called Clostridium difficile that you tend to get after you muck up your gut flora some way. Um, Miss Medic, how how do people muck up? You know how people muck up their gut flora. What are the common ways?
2: Well, look, I guess probably the most common thing we see is after a course of antibiotics. And I guess um, this is where this research is really particularly interesting because we know that there is uh, antibiotics are probably too widely prescribed and we're using uh, broad spectrum antibiotics when we should be using the narrowest spectrum so the the fecal microbiota are pretty much they fall victim to the antibiotics we use they get wiped out even as a sort of as a um an innocent bystander mm. and then we can see that people's um so if you're on a lot of antibiotics over a long course of time there's no doubt that your your gut bacteria is being modified greatly um and we know that there are negative Consequences to that. So,
1: what do you do? Do you do you take probiotics to fix that? If you're on antibiotics, is that what you're supposed to do?
2: There is some evidence for that. I don't think it's. I don't think it's um, brilliant. Um, I think that's only sort of replacing one specific type of of gut bacteria. Uh, you know, obviously, having a good and healthy diet is really important. But uh, I guess the way this is coming into play with that infection of Clostridium difficile, that's like the that's where a gut bacteria that would otherwise be quite quiet when the other bacteria are all wiped out. That can run rampant, mm. and can cause really nasty disease that could even be fatal. You get bloody diarrhea and and um, you know hefty weight loss. The the, the colon becomes very inflamed. So. Um, And we're in the situation, which is like in lots of parts of medicine now, that all we have to fix it, there's one antibiotic that then can knock out that bacteria and help sort of reset the balance somewhat. But if you're in the situation where the bacteria the Clostridium difficile is resistant to this particular type of antibiotic called vancomycin,
0: then you're really stuffed. And a lot of people die from it. I understand thousands each year die from it. Yeah, yeah. so
2: you're more prone to get this type of thing if you're like an inpatient in hospital or an elderly person. So, you know, it's about attacking the vulnerable. So if, you know, one of us in the room here was to get it, chances are we'd, we'd come good. But, you know, in a vulnerable population, so people already hospitalised or um, compromised in other ways, then it can be very, very significant. So with antibiotic-resistant being such a huge issue for us, this, is, this kind of research is really interesting because it, it takes away the need for a new antibiotic to combat this but to rather restore the balance of bacteria in the gut but transplanting somewhat at healthy persons. Stool into your own colon and therefore correcting that balance. Yeah, and
0: currently the sort of research is it, um, that it's at the stage where it's been well established in Clostridium difficile. There's about another 10, 20 illnesses that it's been looked at, and, it's, and uh, the controversy now is that because it's been picked up so thoroughly by medicine, which, you know, ten, once these treatments happen, they, it falls under all sorts of regulations. Mm. For example, in the United States, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, have declared it a drug, essentially, and so there's now heaps of regulation so it's not nearly as easy to get and so there's all these youtubes about how to do it and people are doing self-transplants it's actually not i understand i haven't watched the youtubes i should say but i understand (laughs) it's not super hard what does that look
1: like though what does this transplant actually look like?
0: well what they do is they get healthy faeces from someone They prepare it in a certain way, in a sterilised way, that involves mixing it with the fluid, saline, normal saline. I understand. I've just read outlines. And then they do... They basically put it straight into the gut. So essentially a tube down your throat um, and they introduce it. But there's also tablets being made by drug companies which are in the investigation stage so as you can imagine you know the drug companies that spend millions to get these tablets through are putting pressure on the governments to say make it a level playing field you know everyone needs the same regulation so there's a bit of a battle going on there are some being done in australia one of my friends at the children's hospital told me that they did one last year they had to do lots of regulation and stuff to get it approved but they did it and 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 i and and it went pretty well without any problems so they're at that sort of stage where you can do it under certain um, criteria but it's not widespread available Yet, and um, you know there is a, ho- not that I'm recommending it. Of
3: course, there is a home remedy market out there. Yes, I'm, I'm just having a look on the, on the web at the moment. <laughs> the power of poop.com. There's a quite a disturbing picture of a blender. Uh. <laughs> involved here so you wouldn't <laughs> want to use that home. blender
1: for anything else <laughs> that I? would be just the one for poo only mm. i'd say yeah, yes. so there what are the potential negative consequences because i mean if we do talk about it like an organ tinkering around with it it sounds like a little society within you that's really it is um, we already tinkering big, though that's the problem that guess, is true yeah. but what are there negative effects with tinkering you know, I mean, well, that's well, why the,
0: the government brings in regulations that's right. so that what's we can the hold up. Yeah. Is it just
1: that you need more testing, or is it yeah. that we're concerned that you could, in fact, create another situation well, of b- imbalance course, yeah. in your gut where a bacteria mm. takes mm. precedence and can? Yeah. So,
2: I wouldn't suggest anyone try to ingest somebody else's feces <laughs> because obviously <laughs> there Do is we a need huge to make risk. That recommendation? Well, there's a huge risk for infection in that mm. regard. This would be sort of a transmitted of, well, you know, the classic way you pick up an E. coli gastroenteritis. You know, whether you're vomiting. And, and um, got diarrhoea is that you've touched something contaminated with E. coli, which commonly comes from the bowels, from the gut. Mm. So you know you, you don't wash your hands after going to the toilet, touch a contaminated toilet door, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this would be having to. This is not something that you kind of um, is without sort of risk. It needs to be done in a
0: regulated. Have heaps and, of risk. There, yeah. There's actually a faeces. Um, Bank now in the United States, the first one's been set up, just like there's organ banks for other tissues, and they do all sorts of testings on the donor, and then all sorts of preparations and sterile conditions, because it's life-threatening. If you if you do it and you get the wrong bacteria, Mm. you pick the wrong person to get a transplant from, it it could easily be fatal. And
2: that's yeah, because you find um, blood in stool as well, so there's that risk of sort of blood contamination. But
0: very interesting stuff. Yeah, let's move on. Um, Good topic though. Good topic. Love it. Cutting-edge medicine, so to speak. Um, our special guest or one of our many special guests this morning is russell pratt russell is as i said a forensic and counseling psychologist he uh, works in a government job and he has a clinical interest in sexuality young people sexually abusive behaviors traumas and sexuality and we invited russell in today to talk about the impact of pornography on sexual practices basically in young adults and us all really um so uh you know g'day again russell we've already g'dayed you once but good morning yep morning as i say great effort coming in we're all excited to talk about this topic, there are so many broad-ranging areas, and we're going to try and uh, we're going to try and um, divide it up, a, you know, roughly to talk about a little bit on youth, then a bit about adults and some of the consequences. Sure. But why don't you start us off by telling us about the sort of work you do?
3: Okay, so most of my work is with uh, young people, um, uh, generally under the age of eighteen. Um, My clinical area of interest, of course, is uh, young people and sexuality, and most of my work uh, over the last sort of two decades has been working with young people with sexually abusive behaviours. So young people, we used to call them juvenile sex offenders, but uh, we've moved away from that language, so... um and also adult sex offenders who have contact with children. So I've, I've got that dual role of trying to uh, manage adult sex offenders and what they sort of try and get up to and also making sure we work with young people so they don't take on that adult uh, persona of a, uh, an adult sex offender going through.
0: Goodness gracious, just sounds like tough work. How do, you go, how, just, how do you go about assessing someone when you're looking at all these sexually, you know, behaviours that relate to sexuality? It must be far more challenging than assessing the normal run-of-the-mill stuff.
3: Oh, look, it's interesting work, and it really does sort of um, hook you into it. It's uh, it's a it's a fascinating area to sort of look at, and so diverse. But if we talk about adults, you know, the past really does predict the future. Yep. Um, so when we've got adults who are um, interested in sexually abusing young people, or adult sex offenders who commit rape, etc., we're really looking at uh, what they've done and how many episodes of what they've done uh, compared to young people who really don't have a fixed uh, identity, a fixed sexual identity. So if we look at young people who are Uh, um, engage in sexually abusive behaviours, we really want to interrupt that early. If we do interrupt it early, we know that the outcomes for young people are very good. We know that very few of them go on to uh, sexually abuse again. So my sort of uh, way of of looking at it in terms of assessment, there are some formal assessment tools that we use, and they're what we'd call empirically guided checklists, but uh, that's a sort of dry area. What what we're really looking at is uh, their background of trauma, Um, so we've got the the four big sort of factors that come up again and again are exposure and witness to family violence and if we look at family violence as a as a sort of a general topic it just comes up again and again and again in dysfunction with uh, you know young people Mm -hmm. it's just so pervasive Um, we're also looking at uh, exposure to sexual activity so those young people who may have uh, live in a household where there are really quite um, lax sexual boundaries uh, they may walk in on people uh, having sex also exposure or witness to pornography and and the last one, I think, you know, is a really interesting one. It's it's uh, low level neglect, that kind of cumulative harm framework. So instead of having young people who are really exposed to quite awful, sort of um, brutal um, environments, you don't really need to um, have that level of brutality to actually have a negative outcome.
0: Fair enough. Mm. Why don't you kick us off then by telling us what do we know about young people's sexual practices? What do we know? Do we know what's normal? Do we know what's not? You've got a survey, don't you?
3: Oh, yeah, we know a little bit. We know that, uh, well, the broad picture is that we know that sexual practice is changing for adults as well as adolescents. Mm-hmm. And we know that it's uh, over, the, over the last sort of 30 years, we know that sexual practice has really been impacted by pornography in general. Uh, look, a good example of that is that um, I was talking to a friend of mine that worked in a sexual health centre, and he said that it's very rare now for anyone under the age of 30 to uh, present with pubic hair. Now, um, you know, if you think about pornography and uh, if, you, if you look at any pornography, and I have looked at a bit of it because I've got an interest in it, sure. it usually makes people very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It's hard these days to say I look at it for the articles when it's on the web. But,
0: uh, well, as long as you're a, in an open office space at of work and people are looking over that's your
3: That's right. Head. On my government uh, provided device, <laughs> yes. Um, no, no, I, uh, you know, if you, if you have a look at porn, it, uh, there's, there's really no pubic hair, and so that's really impacted on. Uh, sexual practice as well. Uh, the rates of oral and anal sex, of course, uh, coming through from the 70s have really increased, uh, you know, tenfold. Uh, so for young people, if you survey some young groups of girls, say around 15 or 16, they don't even classify oral sex uh, as sexual practice, as real sex, and they'll talk about yeah, providing... they Clinton. Well, that's true. So. <laughs> so does, there that, it is. does
1: that mean that, uh, you're talking about exposure to sex through pornography that's more uh, widespread, but does that translate to more people having... More sex as well.
3: Yeah, look, I think that, well, here's the interesting thing again, that up until recently every every um, sort of survey of young people and sexual practice indicated that the rates of uh, intercourse, the rates of oral sex, the rates of genital contact were slowly increasing over time. Um, uh, for instance, La Trobe University here in Melbourne does uh, a survey every five years of sexual practice and school uh, students between the ages of, say, 15 and 17, year 10 to year 12. And those rates have generally increased over time over those surveys. So every Every five years, but with the sort of uh, with technology coming through and with sexting and with remote um, technology, uh, for the first time we've seen a decrease in actual what I would call skin to skin sexual contact. Uh, only slight decreases, but they're still significant.
1: Certainly, I think a lot of people predicted some kind of explosion, though, with the increased availability of pornography online. But mm. that's not what we're seeing. Is that what you're saying?
3: Uh, Look, we're seeing some really sort of um, difficult trends to sort of predict. So we know, for instance, that if we we expose young people to pornography under the age of 10, then they will uh, engage in sexual practice up to a year earlier than other young people who aren't exposed. So there seems to be some sort of complex mix of when you see porn and what you see. It seems to be particularly uh, influential and I I would suggest damaging for those young people under 10. And I think, you know, and you could probably look at that, uh, even though they've sort of looked at it under 10, but I think prepubescent exposure to pornography, because most of those young people don't have the maturity or the understanding to actually process what they're seeing.
1: There is there are positives that come from this, though, as well. The availability of information online—I mean, in the form of pornography, but other types of information as well—that can be productive for people's sexual de- or young people's sexual development, in particular, where otherwise they might feel embarrassed or ashamed or not know where to find answers. I mean, is that something that you see in your research as well?
3: Yeah. Look. I, I, um, First of all, I want to be uh, clear, it's not my research, so I'm I'm a little bit of a minor bird, I gather these things and and, um, use these things in my work with uh, young people on the ground, but uh, there's a number of people that talk about the idea that there is a lot of information out there and it it does assist young people, but I think um, I'd be very wary of that in the the much younger children, of course, uh, as a... Broad sort of rule, I would be very careful about exposing anyone sort of under the age of twelve or thirteen to any sort of sexual content on the web. Uh, again, I want to sort of clarify that that um, I don't think you know it's a matter. Uh, I think that young people naturally will look at some pornography. What uh, age? When do
0: you reckon it's relatively normal to start looking? Because well, be most sense. kids have their own computers now and they're often in their own rooms. Schools often give advice about kid, mm. young kids and computers and they particularly focus on porn and violent games and mm-hmm. they normally say, do you keep the kids in the computers in an open area, limit the amount of use that they have, monitor it, consider getting programs to stop them. You know, What do you recommend as a psychologist? Do you reckon that's
3: sensible? Yeah, I think, I think that is sensible. Uh, again, um, one of the things that we'd want to see is parents being able to sort of talk to their young people about uh, pornography and also about sexual practice. Uh, it's logical to start those conversations early, uh, because I think the you know the saying is that the porn genie is out of the bottle. We're not going to be able to put the lid back on the bottle. If you look at some of the research, uh, even and it's changing so quickly. If you look at some of the research from 2011, there's a suggestion that about 30% of young people are looking at porn, and they're mainly males still are looking at porn. If you look now in 2014, a lot of the studies are saying 80, 90, 95% of young people are looking at porn porn and i think again it's moving so quickly and uh, young people have got access to so many Can I just devices put,
0: i put, just want to put you on the spot then for, yep. so if you're a parent and say your kid's 12 years old put it right at the cusp mm-hmm. and you've gone and you found that they're looking good porn what would you recommend that parent do should you know they should obviously start with the conversation what do you recommend they should do
3: well, it's, it's about having the conversation. Uh, the research again sort of indicates that real discussion about real sex education, uh, and not just the mechanics of it, but the relational aspects of it, are really important when talking to young people about porn. I've got this um, sort of uh, you know I, I do a few presentations on this, and I call it the Bruce Willis theory of pornography. Um, that I we like know Bruce that Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, effectively, if we look at the Die Hard movies, uh, and we look at Bruce Willis's hair, we both know that or we know that both those Things are not particularly real. They're both fantasy pieces. Right. Uh, yet young people can watch Die Hard and Bruce Willis and uh, and realise that they can't get shot eight times, they can't jump down five stories you know, and still survive. Or run stealth on
0: glass. That's yes. a bit that always stuck yep. in my yep. mind and said she
3: was Yep. So we, we need to sort of apply the same sort of uh, the die Hard theory to pornography. We have to talk to young people that pornography doesn't actually equate to real sex. Uh, it doesn't actually equate to what a relationship looks like. It's heavily gendered. Uh, it's quite violent um, as I say it's not about stopping young people and uh, I want to be really clear I'm not advocating young people looking at porn but I don't think we can stop them Correct.
2: Yeah. yeah so yeah I guess that sort of touched on what my main concern about pornography is and that is that it is not a true depiction of a true uh, sex, like a true sexual relationship mm. and in particular for women it is quite derogatory in the majority of what is depicted yep. um, and it also shows a very warm sense of what is a preferred sexual encounter from a female point of view mm. and, and that's something I'm really concerned about I think that there are a lot of young women that you know if they are really only sort of experiencing their you know understanding of, of sex through porn mm. or through through the, their male sexual partners that are getting most of their information from porn then they're going to feel like well I should be bleaching my anus and engaging in all these sexual practices that aren't necessarily what are pleasurable for a woman. That's that's my big concern. Mm,
3: It's absolutely true. I mean, uh, if if anyone wants to have a look at this, there's a a fantastic movie. It's Melbourne uh, produced. It's called Love and Sex in an Age of Pornography and it was produced by Marie Crabbe and David Collett uh, out through Brophy Family Services. Uh, And it talks about these very things that you're talking about, the gendered nature of porn, the pressure on young people to actually perform as a porn star, uh, the pressure it puts on young women to engage in sexual acts that aren't particularly pleasurable and, you know, may be seen as quite brutal. Um, the, also, the uh, the uh, the pressure on young men that, uh, you know, that they look at those porn stars with, you know, 14-inch penises and uh, big pecs and everything and can't possibly, you know, be able to sort of perform at the same level. So uh, it, it's a problem,
1: yeah. So I'm a lawyer and, and pornography sits on right on the edges of the law. There's a lot of discussion about what's lawful and what is. And the internet has really transformed that because um, people might not realise, but uh, material that contains a real sex act, so what most people would, are watching when they watch pornography, is, is usually classified X, which means that you can buy it but you can't actually sell it. So a lot of the bookshops that, used to, well, that do still sell this kind of stuff is are potentially breaking the law and they end up selling stuff that's also refused classification because it includes things as well as a real sex act that might violate classification standards. And it's always been right on the edge of what's lawful or not. But can you tell us, Russell, what the internet has obviously totally transformed that because pornography is far more accessible what What are adults watching and, and I mean we 're seeing obviously an increase in consumption of pornography What, mm. what are they looking at when they 're looking at porn on the internet?
3: Gee, Lizzie, it's a, it's a big question. Um, and it, when you were talking about it, it sort of uh, reminded me of those old days, you know, where people would drive to Canberra where you could buy those sex-rated... <laughs> yeah. Uh, Porn videos. Fireworks. Yeah. 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 Fireworks yeah, and fireworks. Yeah, fireworks and down. pornography. but um, so many people became politicians. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. But the... Uh, it, of course the internet has really changed this because if we talk about porn being on the uh, the edges of the law, I don't know how you'd actually enforce the law with mm-hmm. the internet. Um, we know that two-thirds of the adult population that have access to a computer around the world actually look at pornography. So looking at pornography is actually normative behaviour for adults mm-hmm. and it is heavily gendered. Um, there's a couple of studies and a couple of sort of reports. The porn report, for instance, that was one that tries to sort of posit that pornography isn't as gendered as we may think and, and that uh, there is, sort of uh, female pornography that's available Just tell
0: us exactly what you mean by gendered you mean men versus women looking at it
3: Yeah, there's there's a couple of producers of what would be sort of looked at uh, or what the producers are attempting to sort of look at and put out as female porn but uh, any of the research indicates that Effectively, uh, men want to look at body parts and women want to hear the story. So, for instance, uh, if we look at the... There's a a great sort of little book out called uh, A Billion uh, Wicked Thoughts, What the Internet Reveals About Sexual Desire. And to cut to the chase, you know, if they they look at female versus male cues for pornography from the online data, the male cues are visual uh, around age, so most of the searches are around young, teen, female. Uh, They want to look at body parts. Uh, They're going to use it uh, in a solitary way by themselves for masturbation it's about objectification as well uh, if you look at the female cues they're psychological they're around social status uh, around personality based uh, they're social uh, and they're about the uniqueness of the individual so uh, it's almost the mills and boon versus the you know the body parts been uh, very sort of interesting way of interacting with porn um, we also know that that uh, at least 10 billion dollars is spent on porn a year so uh, whenever i train on this i, I tell people to thank pornography and perhaps the CIA, but we'll talk about pornography today for all the uh, improvements in the speed and quality of their pictures on the computer that they use.
0: I've, I've actually once heard that a third of internet traffic is porn. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I, a heard bit, that. a I heard it on the radio though, so it must be reasonably true. <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> that's
3: right. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's
0: one of my various yeah. facts and figures that come out of thin
3: air. Yes. Are talking about your usage third, <laughs> or is that? No. Um, it's,
0: it's one of the funny things about this topic. It's so hard to talk about it. You know, I'm just sitting here biting my tongue trying, oh, not to make too many stupid adolescent quips, which is normally my stock and trade. But uh, yeah, so it is. it is a massive impact on the internet. Oh, Obviously.
3: It Absolutely. It, it really is. Um... You, know,
0: you know what it also reminds me of? Tallman last week, anyone who was listening last week, Tallman presented a story saying how big data is really impacting on the medicine these days. And he had a study that said your internet use... Things that um, you can look at from people's internet usage can predict a lot of stuff about people's health. You know, for example, Google can pick where a flu epidemic is um, starting up quicker than the um, Centre for Disease Control in the US, the big monitoring agency. Also, some people's behaviour can predict their diagnoses. Can you predict people's sexuality from their internet use?
3: (laughs) Oh, I, well, yeah, I think you can, uh, particularly um, when you analyse sort of the individual sort of uh, usage uh, data. Um, can I give you an example from yeah. a billion wicked thoughts? I'm just going through it. So, oh,
0: how disgusting is it? First, actually, it's Sunday morning. People can cop it. Go ahead. Uh, I think
3: I'll,
0: I'll
1: just people just a
3: well, Yeah, that's true. I'll I'll, I'll just use uh, AOL user number one nine one zero two three nine. If you're out there, this is you. So this is from a book. So this is published. Yeah, effectively. So this is you're this just is just checking uh, it for slander. <laughs>
0: for is, yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
3: basically uh, so these were the searches that uh, this user actually um engaged in over a period of time over a month um in praise of women's assholes anal bear pics 70 year old pussy pics granny taking it deep etc 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 i don't think i can read any further but um,
0: what does that tell us though what does it tell us is uh, this because this is the thing that always gets me you know i read an article too that I, and I made note of it too that um i this was an article that came out two years ago and i know it was covered on the radio i heard about it then that a lot of males who identify as heterosexual look at, look at lady but boy porn. If yes. I've got the right term there. Yeah. Um I hope I have got the right term. There, you yeah, because yep. it's uh, I don't want to offend anyone. But the implication of this article back then was was very common and it didn't necessarily mean anything about people's sexuality. What are your
3: thoughts? Oh, look, there's been a lot of sort of analysis of the, the, the ladyboy porn, etc., but it, it taps into the POV, the point of view of pornography, and uh, what they call uh, gonzo porn. Uh, that men effectively uh, place themselves in the position of uh, being in the picture. Um, so if you look at uh, pornography that's viewed by males, you see a lot of it is about the penis. It's actually um, not so much about female female uh, genitalia as the male penis you know there's something about the way that uh, pornography uh, taps into them or the, the male brain taps into pornography that males want to see penises doing things in pornography right. um, if, if you analyzed it purely you would think that uh, most males that looked at porn were actually um, homosexual because they're actually looking at uh, a lot of male anatomy
1: it's interesting, though, because um, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably think it's all very depressing in terms of what it means for our personal relationships and to the sexualisation of a whole generation of people. But I'm not sure it's always that negative. I mean, people talk a lot about the connection between violent behaviour, for example, video games. We've sort of had that debate, and I don't think it's been this proliferation of violence that you might have thought if you were just looking at all that that data and mm. statistics. Is the same true for pornography? Because something makes me think that sure, people might be having this activity online, but in even 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 though it is about sex, that is quite different and um, potentially quite separable from your own personal relationships that might end up being more functional despite all this data that we we Mm. hear about from people's online porn searches.
3: I think most people are able to compartmentalise and understand what fantasy is. And and I think you're absolutely right, Lizzie. Um, The the debate for us, uh, it depends how we frame up the the debate. So the feminist um, analysis of the debate is that pornography viewing will lead to debasement of women and degradation and violence towards women. And I think that there is some truth in that. question is the causality so you know we're not finding uh, any causal links and I think that uh, that's that's logical that we wouldn't the question's always going to be why can say a thousand uh, people young people adults look at porn uh, and 998 of them um, you know treat it as fantasy understand it as fantasy and have what we'd see as healthy relationships with those around them and yet two uh, of those young people will be heavily influenced by that pornography
2: and I guess that's the thing, is that um, we're talking about most adults can compartmentalise and have a fan- like what is a fantasy and what is reality. Mm. But then if we think about the exposure to young people, that's mm. the thing. If porn is becoming your predominant sexual experience, sexual um, introduction to sexuality as a young person, then that's where my concern lies. You know, there's been this thought about, um, you know, developing brains and what, what fire, fires together is wired together. So if, if this is your predominant experience, are we laying down these neural pathways that are really difficult to change? And so... Um my concern is with the increased exposure and the um, to porn. Do we actually set some young people's brains up to be unable to engage in, you know, normal functional sexual relationships?
3: Yeah. Look, I think that that's. Um i think that's that's a good hypothesis there's there's certainly uh, one of the issues with porn is that it's become so extreme in some ways uh, if again if you look at the research and some of the, the discussion around porn there's uh, there's a genre of porn called made you look uh, and it's so extreme that no one would likely practice it at home and and it is it's uh, the idea of it is oh it made you look it's so bad uh, it's, it's so um, debasing. Uh, and you've got to think that if a young person is spending hours and hours looking at that sort of porn, uh, what sort of, number one, what neural pathways are they laying down? But number two, you know, what, what's it actually sort of indicating to them about what sex really means? And we sometimes forget, you know, one of the things uh, for me that I found difficult to sort of understand or difficult to believe was that young people would actually believe that this was real sex. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you talk to young people long enough, and particularly young people who haven't had... Sexual experience or relational experience, uh, you actually find that they do believe it, that this is what sex is all about. Mm. It's
0: astounding. We're going to have to wind this topic up um, for now, but we'll throw some of those resources onto our Facebook page, which is called uh, Radiotherapy Triple R, so you can look it up. You can like us, and you'll see it. I'll put the link to that um La Trobe University study you mentioned, mm. and I'll put a link to that book that you mentioned as well, if people want to get more. Hey, um, Russell Pratt, forensic and clinical psychologist. Thank you so much for coming in to talk about all that. That is fantastic. Um, we're going to have, you're also going to stay with us, yes, but we're going to have a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about tips for a mindful Christmas. You are listening to a
3: podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
2: After all of that talk about faecal transplants <laughs> and pornography, if your brain's exploding, I'm just going to bring it back down to basics and talk a little bit about my top tips for a mindful Christmas. So... A lot of the listeners will be aware that I've been talking about mindfulness um, over the last couple of years, and for me, I use it with my patients and I use it in my own life as sort of a counterpoint to the sort of fast-paced and hectic life that we lead. Um, and there's also some really good evidence backing up mindfulness-based practices that it's, there's many health benefits associated with its regular use. So simply put, mindfulness is about bringing our attention to what's happening in the present moment, giving it our full awareness, accepting what we're feeling, thinking, without judgement... Um, so I think that Christmas is the perfect time to engage in some mindful practice. I think for many people, Christmas is experienced as few weeks of absolute crazy preparation and Christmas parties and mayhem. Um, so there's heaps of build-up, and then the day itself's gone in a blur. So I think that... Um, yeah, I'm going to give my top tips to hopefully bring some more, um, you know, enjoyment back into the Christmas experience. So I
0: love it when there's top tips. I always get my pen out, I turn my bit of paper over, and I number them. Well, I, you know pop. what,
2: I, I believe that because I, one of my top tips led to you getting your flu jab. So at least you, you are, you know, <laughs> you're <tips>. listening. Yeah. <laughs> flu jab <It> was number <laughs> three that day. Yeah. Uh, so number one, mindful waiting. So the Christmas period often involves a fair bit of, like, waiting in line. So you at the fish shop or looking for a car park Or in the line waiting for a photo of Santa. And I think that waiting in that sort of high stressed environment can bring out some of the worst. Um, characteristics in people people get very frustrated leading to anger and even aggression and i think it's really you know it's the opposite of what christmas should be about so yeah, i love this one yeah so if you're when you're waiting see if you can pay attention to what you're feeling notice any frustrations that's coming up um don't, don't try to wish it away don't try to fuel it with those thoughts of oh this is just a pain I should have done this earlier like why am i bothering all that stuff is just not helpful so make space for the frustration and in doing so you kind of you might feel that you know it's just easier to cope with and we won't you know, find ourselves just cursing what should be, um, you know, all in all, a pleasant experience. So, mindful waiting is my first tip. Mindful eating. One of the best bits of Christmas is all the delicious food that often is expensive and it's taken lots of preparation to get it all together. So, I think it's really easy to just eat and overeat without actually yeah, I like tasting to eat the, your food. the
0: whole meal in the first 10 minutes so that <laughs> I can have another meal another 15 minutes later.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, do that as long as you're doing it mindfully. Oh. So, really Really taste with your f- taste your food, connect with your senses. Eat slowly, safe. Sl- well, eat slowly or quickly if or you do it, yeah. and and, and savor the different tastes and textures. And in that way, you're actually truly enjoying what has taken a lot of effort. Um, Top tip number three, gratitude. So mindfulness and gratitude, you know, feed each other. When we open our awareness to what we have and who we are and what's important to us, we can find gratitude. Um, And when we're grateful, our life becomes sort of one of plenty rather than what we're sort of missing out on, what we don't have. So if you can switch your attention to what you do have this Christmas time, not what you're unable to afford or what you don't get, um, then you'll be able to find gratitude. And in that same sort of... um, a mindfulness-based practice at its very simplest is about bringing attention to your breath. So in doing so, you can even find a sort of gratitude for the fact, you know, that you're alive, um,
0: Let alone getting Christmas presents.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so making it's, good. It's good also to think about what you've succeeded at rather than failed throughout the year. Because sometimes you get to the end of the year and you're I meant to do this and this and I didn't do it. At least if you say, I have succeeded in these, it's not everything I wanted, but i got a, a good way to going in the direction I want to be. That can be a bit of a better way, I think, to approach the end of the year. Absolutely. Mentally.
2: Absolutely. Because I think a lot of people talk about New Year's resolutions about you know, what they're going to change. But if we can actually switch our focus to what we have already achieved and what were the good things, then it's... You sort of you end up with a perspective of uh, life being a lot more full <coughs> and positive. Mm. Um, so the next one was mindful giving, which sort of feeds in straight from the last one. So when writing a Christmas card, making or purchasing a gift for someone, bring your attention to that person. What do they mean to you? How different would your life be if, you, if they were no longer a part of it? And in doing so, you can kind of open up to the true meaning behind giving. Um, and I think along that same line, uh, when we're mindful about what Christmas is about and, or the holiday period is about, we can acknowledge that you know other people people could be doing it really tough so take that as an opportunity to do something for those that are truly in need over this period whether that's something like just inviting an extra guest around you know making sure you catch up with a friend who might be feeling a bit down in that time of year or donating to a cause helping at a soup kitchen all those things i mean i think that there it's a true a true altruistic act like that is also really beneficial for ourselves as well which is, you know, just kind of a, an added bonus. And
0: it's probably the most important time of year to do that whole are you okay sort of thing and Absolutely. just having a little bit of thought about the people, you know, anyone around you who might be struggling this time of year Yeah, because we and, have to acknowledge, uh, reaching out.
2: Yeah, Christmas can be really hard for some people in mm. this period so you know, it's a really, if we if, but if we're too caught up in everything else then we fail to pay attention to those sorts of things. And then number five, my last tip for a mindful Christmas is to incorporate a mindful pause. So there's no doubt that Christmas can bring stressful situations so for example last year our oven cut out halfway through cooking the roast pork and the turkey so it was getting a bit tense So, or perhaps you, one of your family members really gets on your nerves or you make the parental error of forgetting to buy a whole gamut of batteries and then your three year old is losing it on Christmas morning because their toy uh, doesn't a work. A
0: parental mistake. Oh,
2: yes. Absolutely, yeah. You know, era, rookie era. Um So in those situations where you feel like things could be spiralling out of control, it's a really good idea to sort of just take the time to bring your attention back to your breath, acknowledge the thoughts and feelings that race through your mind. You don't have to jump on board them, and it can be a really good circuit breaker for when things are starting to spiral out of control. So they're my top tips for a lovely, mindful Christmas for all our radiotherapy listeners. I reckon everyone
0: should be well and truly fired up now to uh, have a good Christmas. Mm -hmm. Hey, um... It's our last minute of our last show for 2014. There is more radiotherapy for the next two weeks, mind you, people, um, but it's just this particular crew's last one, although I haven't just figured out whether I'm on next week with Mel Practice yet, so I might be back, <laughs> but this particular crew. Um, so uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. It's time for a bit of a thank you to everyone, in particular thanks to um, all those people who sort of send in stuff for us, and then they know who they are, guys like Mike Starr, um, Johnny Mark and Mark Anderson, all these people around town who flick me emails every week for example, uh, Mark Anderson flicks some stuff today, so it's um, fantastic, thanks to all the crew at Triple R for supporting us and helping us so much Kent who does so much of the panelling, it's fantastic to have you all and to have such a big community of people listening, jump onto our Facebook page, thanks to Lizzie O'Shea, Miss Medic and Russell Pratt for joining us Today.
3: Is it too loud up there? Is it too loud? Never too young, too old or too much. Triple R.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more?
1: Check out our website at rrr.org.au.